Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 7, How Change Happens. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. It affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga and I'm a social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but I've also lived the experience of being family to addiction as both a child and adult. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over a decade and now have been in recovery together for almost 20 years. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. Hi, this is Kira. One thing that can help both family members and people with addiction is better understanding of how change happens. In this episode, we will be tackling that very subject by exploring a theory that is pretty well known among recovery professionals, but is not discussed enough with family members. Throughout the episode, we will hear the voices of people in recovery from various addictions about how each stage of the change process looked and felt to them, all with the goal of helping people with addiction and those who love them to understand more about recovery. All this after a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. I talked with Casey about how people change, and in the discussion, he drew on not only theoretical knowledge, but also years of teaching these ideas in family workshop, and we both got a chance to reflect on how change has happened for us in our own recoveries. Let's hear that discussion now. So we are talking about these stages of change today. Sometimes there are six, but today there are five. Casey... Tell me about the first stage of change. Absolutely. And you're right. There are six stages of change. If you talk to the originators of this theory, that's two guys named Prochaska and DiClemente. And they came up with this idea of studying how people quit smoking. And when they recognized the patterns and started to work out that there were five stages, or originally they would say six, the sixth one is optional. We'll get to that at the end. They looked and said, you know, some of these things might apply for other addictions. And what we've come to find out is actually it applies not just around addiction recovery, 
but also how people change, how families change, how societies change, how organizations and communities change. And we start to see these stages of change. And the first stage is called pre-contemplation. Second one is contemplation. And then we get into planning or preparation, depending on who you talk to. It's the same thing, just two different names. We get into action. And then the holy grail that everyone wants to get to is called maintenance. And then the sixth optional stage is relapse. So we're going to talk about the first stage of change, and that is pre-contemplation. Hey, Casey. Yeah? How many social workers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know <laughs> how many. Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. That is a beautiful illustration of pre-contemplation. It is. It is. That's <laughs> totally why I said is. it. Yeah. That's Nicely why done. I thought of it. Pre-contemplation, I will, I will uh, divert the conversation over to a joke. That could be something people do in pre-contemplation. That's true. So the whole idea in pre-contemplation is that this is before you were contemplating the idea that you have a problem. So if you're noticing any issues around behavior and stuff like that, your first thought is, it's not my problem, it's someone else's problem. So an illustration I use all the time when I'm teaching this to families is to say, if I notice that my jeans are getting tighter, I think, ah, it's the dryer, right? It's not me, it's not the donuts, it's not my eating habits, it's nothing <laughs> like that, it's just the dryer. That's pre-contemplation. Many of us have had that experience, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in pre-contemplation, um, what we're often doing in working with clients and working with people is helping them to find their internal motivation because they haven't found it yet. Contrary to maybe some older thinking around this, it's not about slapping them upside the head and saying, wow, can't you see you have an issue? Because it turns out that people move out of pre-contemplation not because enough people are pressuring them or yelling at them, but because they themselves come to the conclusion. So as a family member, if you're noticing that your loved one is in pre-contemplation as much as you may want to just shake them by the shoulders and say, can't you see it, can't you see it, can't you see it? What you actually would want to do is get out of the way of their natural consequences. You don't have to create any consequences, but you don't need to shield them from their consequences either. Never get in between a drunk and rock bottom. Exactly. Sometimes for a lot of people with addiction, that idea of hitting bottom is what we need to get out of pre-contemplation into contemplation. But before we jump into contemplation, what that's all about, let's hear from some people who are in recovery now about what pre-contemplation was like for them. Okay, can you describe your thinking and behavior before you had even considered recovery? Aggressive, um, disrespectful, dismissive of others and myself, and oblivious to um, any internal dialogue. Uh, really, it completely in disconnect and in, in disharmony with myself and others. I would deflect a lot of blame onto others. You know, that if only they would do this, then I would be better. Or it would just be that negative thought of myself, like not knowing who I was, not knowing my identity, um, not knowing my strengths even, right? And so like, because I relied so much on people to give me that, I was just always completely lost. 
and I didn't have any self-confidence. Yeah, um, irrational, you know. Uh, there was not a lot of thinking that went into much. I was a runner. I ran from all problems, all responsibility. There was very little thinking that went into it. Most of it was about myself, you know, selfish thinking. Most of that was, uh, it was all about me, you know. I was not thinking much about anybody else or any kind of consequences or anything. Yeah, it was uh, pretty much suicidal depression, anxiety. Um, it was bad. My state of mind before I even considered recovery was that of a delusional person. <laughs> I was miserable. I had run out of resources. I had ran my mom's side of the family out. Um, I, I used and abused all of that. So I basically said, well, I'm going to call this man who is my biological father and I'll just see what I can get out of him. And that's where I was at. Pretty much insane, um, neurotic. I basically would get into loops in my head over something that somebody may have done that I could personally, and you know, I'd have arguments in my head with these people and conversations that never happened in real life, and that was pretty insane. And before recovery, I, I also didn't have any impulse control. I, I tried to recover on my own several times. The first time I attempted recovery was 1999. I haven't had any real recovery until 2016. But from 99 to 2016, it was already pretty contemplation. Uh, I, I knew drugs and alcohol were getting in the way of my connection with my fellow man and, and you know, my, my beliefs. I have a question. What's that? So our last speaker was... It seems like he was in contemplation and pre-contemplation almost at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point, and this is a good thing for anyone to be looking at this. Um, in the way people change, we don't always change the same way about all things at the same time. So what I was hearing in that last quote is that he was in contemplation, that is, he's thinking about it, contemplation about the idea that drugs are causing a problem in his life, but he's in pre-contemplation about accepting help for it. Okay. So this happens to people all the time if you think about some things in your own experience. We might be in contemplation about this is a problem, but pre-contemplation about accepting the solution. So for instance, if I go back to my jeans and donuts and dryer example, I might say, ah, oh, you know what? Maybe it is my behavior. Okay, I could see that. Now I'm in contemplation about I'm contributing to the problem. And somebody says, hey, you know what works really well? Cut out the donuts, add vegetables, exercise more. Nah. Exactly. I can't do that. And so one thing that can happen is I can stay stuck in the middle. Another thing that often happens for people is that we will jump back and forth between stages. Okay. So I'm in contemplation briefly, and then I jump back to pre-contemplation. So if I'm a person with addiction, for instance, I might say, oh, maybe I do have an addiction and this is causing me a problem. But that thought becomes too painful or too difficult to deal with or I feel hopeless. And so I go back to thinking, no, you know, really, I don't have a problem. It's society's problem. If people just didn't judge me, I'd be fine. But a family member can do the same thing. Mm. As a family member, I might recognize, you know, my son or daughter or cousin or parent or spouse or whoever it is, man, maybe this is getting out of hand. 
And then some little voice pops up in my head and says, not in my family, can't be my kid, right? And then I think, no, you know, this is just something people do. It's normal, you know, they're in college, whatever it is that I tell myself. So as a family member, I can also jump back and forth between those stages really easily. So can I. I remember thinking, well, you know, he's an artist, he's a musician, (laughs) he's going to be a little wild. So for me, yeah, jumping between contemplation and pre-contemplation a few times with accepting that you were an addict because you got there first with your realizations, but also I went between contemplation and pre-contemplation with my own addiction when I first found out my first addiction was to sugar, you know, let alone other food, but just sugar, you know. I had to quit sugar for medical reason and I discovered that I had, uh, I had crazy withdrawals. And I, I went, oh my God, I'm an addict. What do I do? I have to quit. So I guess that was my aha moment. But before that, you know, I was trying to make it as a, as a rock star. And, you know, the extra weight was not helping. And looking back, it wasn't just the extra weight. It was, it was my fears and, and all these things that I've since dealt with in program, I still was carrying around with me along with the extra weight. But, you know, I would, I would try diet pills, I'd maybe lose weight for a little while, and then the diet pills would stop working, and then the weight would come back on, and I would try a crash diet or something, and I was really terrible at losing weight, and then it was, it was impossible for me to keep it off. And did you find yourself in those times where it was difficult, and you, you'd try a new solution, then you'd stop the new solution? Did you ever find yourself going back into a mindset, hey, I'm not going to look at this or it's not a problem? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so that's the jumping back and forth between Mm -hmm. contemplation and pre-contemplation. There you go. And as far as any of your addictions, in every single case, I was in pre-contemplation around your addiction the whole time. Never saw it, didn't think about it. I was, like many people with an addiction, I was very self-focused. So I was thinking, oh, I'm the one with the problem. Not like it's a badge of honor, but I was the identified patient in the family. I'm the one that we need to work on. And then you'd pop up and say, hey, I figured this thing out. And then that would spur me into contemplation, which is what we want to look at next. So contemplation is exactly what it sounds like. It's when I'm starting to think about it and think, maybe this is a problem. Maybe I do need to deal with it. So that's the moment where, for instance, I say, wow, it's not the dryer, it's the donuts. What do I do? And sometimes I can just sit in that recognition without jumping into making a plan for a while. I can just sit in that recognition and often people flip-flop back and forth a number of times. Contemplation, pre-contemplation, contemplation, pre-contemplation, contemplation, pre-contemplation, until that starts to become so difficult or painful or unmanageable or unworkable that I'll say, okay, I do need to do something. And uh, I think maybe this would be a good time to hear from our person on the street interviewees about what it was like to get into contemplation for them. the moment when you thought, no, I really need to change? Yes. Um, I had, a, I guess, God's intervention um, in Travis County Jail. Um, it all hit me at once that the time is now. You know, I had a choice to make, um, either go on and ultimately probably die or change my life, turn it around and make this something positive. I didn't know what recovery looked like. 
and I didn't know what that even was. I just knew that I didn't want the consequences and I knew that I didn't want to keep having the sickness through my alcoholism and addiction. And so I feel like for that, my, my ability to really make any logical decisions on, on what my next step would be was difficult to see at that time. But at the same time, um, I feel like I, I knew that I just didn't, I didn't want what I had. Oh man. I mean, I was just an angry person. And so like my aggression just got so bad that I would push people away. I would have walls built up and I was about to lose my fiance at the time. And, uh, even my relationship with my kids, like it, it, I was just missing that connection with them and my relationship with my parents. And so I was just constantly in fear mode. Um, even more suicidal depression, because um, I didn't see a way out of what was going on with me. I think there was desperation in that time period where um, I knew that my old coping behaviors weren't working anymore, so I was still, you know, having that pain that I was trying to eat over. You know, even the eating wasn't taking that pain away. So there was probably a lot of confusion, too, and going, okay, why is that not working? And, so, and I didn't have a new way of being yet, but the old way wasn't working. So there was, there was a bit of um, despair and confusion. I, I think that's where the pain came in. I knew I needed to change, but I hadn't done anything to change. I was in a detox treatment center at the time, detoxing off of heroin. So I open my eyes and I see this man who has the same eyes as me. <laughs> and we're staring at each other and he says, this is my fault. I know why you have this disease. And I want you to come to San Antonio. I'm going to help you. And so that's what I ended up doing, but it took a couple more years of me, quote unquote, doing research. What really jumped out to me on that more than anything else was the fact that out of several people, only one person talked about losing relationships. That's how it was for you, right? Yeah. A lot of my contemplation was recognizing that addiction could possibly apply to me. I'd always told myself I'm better, stronger, faster, smarter than everybody else, and so I'm going to hold myself to a different standard. These were all the kind of justifications I used to keep myself in pre-contemplation. So contemplation was a big step of humility, but I'm very fortunate in that it was recognition of what I was about to lose rather than recognition of what I had lost. Because I didn't lose much on the outside, but I had long since lost a lot of stuff on the inside. I had lost self-trust and self-respect and the trust of others and things like that. But I had damaged relationships. I had not lost a whole lot, if that's what you're asking. So getting into contemplation started for me with a therapist in the first few minutes of the very first session saying, so have you ever heard of sex addiction? And I hadn't. But as soon as she said it, I thought, and that's me. <laughs> Contemplation hit right away where I thought, does this mean I have to go like meetings and is this the rest of my life? And immediately I started trying to think of all the ways I could get back into pre-contemplation. But part of me just knew the gig is up. So that's contemplation. But contemplation within itself 
can be exciting for family members. Like, oh, they finally get it. But nothing has changed yet. There's an old joke in AA where they'll say, three frogs are sitting on a log. Two of them decide to jump off. How many frogs are still on the log? Mm -hmm. Three. They're all still on the log. They've only made a decision. Nothing's actually happened yet. So that decision, here's what we're going to do, we're going to jump off the log, that moves us into the preparation stage. And so preparation is where I am starting to make a plan, and that's why some people refer to it as planning. That's where, for instance, if I'm a person with an addiction and I've accepted, yes, this is really going on, that's where I might start saying, okay, let's look for some of those meetings we've heard about, or... Let me see if I can find a treatment center or or I'm just going to quit on my own. I mean, that is a plan and it does work for some people. But it's the beginning of thinking, how am I going to do this? Now, notice, again, no action's been taken. And sometimes just looking at the plan is scary enough that we go back to pre-contemplation. A lot of people leave treatment in their first week. They might not even get through detox and change their minds and, and coming in of their own volition, then back to right off. Yeah. And went all the way back. Because it looks scary. You know, and as we've mentioned in a previous episode, it's simply difficult to change human behavior. People like to do what they're used to doing, even if it hurts. And this goes for family members, too. Family members can make a plan. You know what? I'm not going to let them back in the house. I'm not going to give them money. I'm going to start going to a recovery fellowship myself. All these plans. And then just don't follow through, or it's difficult, or they were crying, so I gave them 20 bucks, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. And, um, you know, in my example of the donuts and the dryer and the jeans, this is where I think, like, okay, this is it. I'm going to join a gym, and I'm going to eat healthy, and I'm going to start running every day, and all these kinds of things. And then I get up the next day, and maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll do it tomorrow, and maybe I'll I'll start my diet on Monday. Exactly. I'm sure this one will work. Monday never comes. <laughs> Monday never comes. Or worse yet, it comes, it goes, keeps on going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I already forgot on Monday morning and I ate the bad breakfast, so I guess I'll start next week. Totally. And again, as a family member, tempting as it is, you can't do it for them. So what we want to do is maybe hear from some of the people in our interviews talking about what it looked like when they started to make plans. Alrighty, let's do it. What were your early plans for recovery? I thought that if I could just physically get off of the substance, that I would be fine. And I planned a detox for myself, made it about 10 days. And within that 10 days, I... I feel like uh, I couldn't I couldn't break it. My plan was to be like, I'm going to be totally fine as long as I can separate myself. But it, on the 10th day, all I could do was be right back in the same cycle. So most of my plans were very futile. You know, I think it was just I wanted answers, you know. And once I identified all my codependency traits, I'm like, wait, there's a solution to this. And I, I wanted something to change. And at, at this point... I didn't have any specific expectations of what that change would look like. I just wanted some sort of happiness. Mm, I didn't really have any. And I think that's why it might have been detrimental when I first got into recovery because I didn't have any plans. I was really unsure of what the program was and what it was supposed to do for me. 
So I was kind of thrown into this huge recovery scene in Austin um, in a sober living home and didn't know anyone and was just trying to wing it, really. Um, so maybe that was your plan. So maybe that was my plan. <laughs> I just, I don't know. Uh, it didn't work out too well. Mm. But um, that's my journey, right? It's part of my story. Um, when I got into treatment, uh, I just did whatever they told me to do. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of plans other than going to sober living afterwards and then doing AA, doing 12-step recovery. Early time of recovery was just to leave it alone. I was just going to work, get a job, mind my business. I was going to leave everybody alone. Uh, I didn't really need help. I had made my mind up and I was going to not do drugs anymore. My early plans. Um... Well, I was going to get thin, and I was going to be happy, and everything was going to be okay, and uh, it didn't quite turn out that way. I actually did get thin, but the problems didn't go away, and I thought that they would, um, but they didn't. They only became more intense without the food to numb me out, so I actually had to deal with them. You know, you don't have to necessarily rush out and decide what your career choice is and let let things that happen as they do, you know. One day at a time. One day at a time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Amen. There's a reason that we say that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's the preparation or planning stage. What do you think? I thought it was kind of striking that, like one of the guys was saying, I, I really had no plan whatsoever, or, you know, I had this vague idea that I was going to go to sober living, or I was going to hit some AA meetings. We're so used to winging it, you know? I went into recovery with really no solid plan beyond, I think I'll show up at my first meeting and let's see what happens. And this is where a lot of recovery fellowships turn to mentorship to listen to what have other people done and what's worked for other people. But in the general scheme of things, what I heard in some of the examples is that there may not have been like a really solid or great plan, but there was still somewhere in the mind, I'm going to do something. I'm gonna show up at that first meeting. I'm gonna to go to rehab. I may not know what's involved there, but I'm gonna show up. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's as far as the plan goes. So once we've done the planning though, then everybody gets really excited. It's time for action. And this is often where both the person heading into recovery and the family members and people that love them get really excited. Like, you're finally doing it. So this is the moment where in our original example, I get that gym membership. I sign up for a bunch of, (laughs) you can see this coming already. (laughs) I sign up for a bunch of personal training. I start eating salad for lunch every day and I'm like, man, I'm all about this, but what's the catch? Gotta keep doing it it's really easy to go from here back to pre-contemplation. In fact, the business model for a gym is based on the fact that people don't keep it up. If everybody who signed up for a gym membership actually showed up at the gym, there wouldn't be room. And so the same thing happens for a lot of people about recovery. In fact, there is an expression, the pink cloud. You may have heard this one. Yeah. Pink Cloud is when somebody first shows up to the rooms of recovery and they are all about it and they have found their new way of life and nothing's going to stop them and they're hitting like a gajillion meetings and they're going to try and work through all 12 steps in a day. And unfortunately, sometimes the people who have been in long-term recovery and been around for a while are just kind of like looking at their watch and marking their calendar. and things like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's unsustainable generally. So for family members, the same kind of thing can come up in your own recovery. I've had a lot of family members that would go to an Al-Anon meeting or to a smart family and friends meeting or something like that while their loved one's in treatment. And then as soon as their loved one gets out of treatment, they're like, oh, well, I guess I'm done too. All right, cool. I don't need to do those things anymore. And uh, I've seen family members relapse back to their old behavior as fast or faster than the person with the addiction because it's easier to go back to pre-contemplation. Nonetheless, obviously we need to go into the action stage to get anywhere. And so let's hear the voices of some people that have some experience with this in their own recovery, whether they're family members or the person with the addiction. We're going to hear from both about what the action stage looked like for them. All right. And what got you started into taking positive action? You know, it got so bad. I remember this one time it got so bad at work when I was feeling so miserable and out of control. I had to get to that point of desperation for myself to seek an outside meeting. And I reached out to a friend in recovery and asked her if I could join her to an Al-Anon meeting. And there was some sort of comfort that motivated me to go back. Um, I had a suicide attempt and it put me in the hospital and then in a spot where they, they introduced me to what drug addiction and alcoholism really looked like. That's what got me going. Um, I felt this overwhelming feel of a sense of like purpose. I felt like I have something bigger to do with with this part of my life. Ultimately, I knew I wanted to help people um, work in a treatment center. So it's hard to explain, but um, I just had, got this like overwhelming motivation. I guess you called it a spiritual experience, you know? I just felt like I was missing out on, on helping. All I wanted to do was just not have these negative consequences. And that sounds really horrible, but I just didn't know what the life could be so much better than what it was. I just didn't want all the issues I was having. And so when I was trying to make a decision on like what to do, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I didn't know if I wanted to quit. I just didn't want the consequences. I knew that I was out of control. My body was telling me that I was out of control. And I just was waking up to the idea that I couldn't, I couldn't control it. You know, I couldn't, and nothing that I was trying was working. And uh, at that time, I was only focused on my weight and how much weight I had gained. And then I was talking about it with a program friend from another program who also happened to be in Overeaters Anonymous. And she heard me and invited me to come to a meeting. And that was the turning point for me. Uh, I attended a DTP program, which is a drug treatment program when you're incarcerated. And this is 2010. I remember a person telling me, when you burned all your bridges and you have nowhere else to go, there's always AA. And I say that because in 2016, April 27th, I had just got out of jail for like the 30th time. A young lady picked me up, and I'll tell you this how God acts. I was in very bad shape, and uh, she offered me things that I usually like. And uh, I remember just being so angry and upset. I couldn't believe she had offered me drugs and other things. And I had been sober for two days in jail. And so I, I just, I took off walking. And I ended up walking uh, about a mile and a half, and I ended up at the A club. I just walked in. I didn't even know the place was an A club. I just walked in there, and I've been there ever since. 
Let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Then we'll be back to hear more about how change happens. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. We'll continue with our discussion, starting with some reflection on the interviews we just heard. So, what do you think about our action speakers? I just loved it that our last speaker was sharing about a, a very rough car ride when he was leaving jail, and he took off walking because somebody offered him drugs after two whole days of sobriety, and he just walked in the door of some building, and it turned out to be an AA room. Yeah, and that moment of the action phase of him just knowing, like, this is no longer what I want, and then taking action on it, and that's the important thing, is we can plan all day, but now we're taking action. Now, usually at this point, people get really excited, right? We mentioned that. Family members especially will think, wow, this is it. They're finally doing it. Pink cloud time. Yeah, and I often say that in treatment, the action phase is about as far as you can get. Which means? Which means that there's still another phase to go. But then if there's another phase to go, then why is the action phase as far as you can get? Well, the next stage is called maintenance. And this is when it's just part of your life. And since you're not going to live forever at a treatment center, it's hard to say, oh, this is just how I live now. <laughs> you can kind of get maybe a little taste of it if you're in treatment for long enough. But most people aren't. Just reality. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to leave from there, and then you'd be kind of starting all over again. So the maintenance phase, in our example of the donuts and the dryer and the jeans, mm -hmm. this is the phase where exercising and eating healthy is just part of your life. Nobody's cheering when you say you're going to go to the gym. Nobody's saying, <laughs> hey, you're finally doing it. You're losing the weight. That's great. It becomes just part of your life. And so this is the kind of the holy grail of recovery. This is where everybody wants to be. And there's not a moment where you think, okay, I was in action, and now I'm in maintenance. It's just more that you notice over time that neither you nor anyone else is surprised when you engage in your recovery. And I'm not craving the donuts every day. Yeah, it doesn't feel the same. How long did it take you to get, you think, from action to maintenance? That is a great question for which I do not have a good answer. <laughs> I was thinking about it and I don't really know for sure. I just know that when I joined my first 12-step program, I was really ready and yet I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't go to a treatment or anything. I just, I went to one meeting a week and it was very seat of my pants recovery. So that's all action. That's where it's new, or it's yeah. exciting, yeah. or a bummer, or you're testing the waters. But I wonder, if I may ask, for you as a family member, what's the point where you started just rolling along with or taking for granted that I was going to meetings? I started taking for granted that you were going to continue going to meetings and continue improving when you seemed to have relaxed. You had a very tough time at the beginning of your action phase, much tougher than mine. 
you know, I was very relieved when you got into meetings, but between the beginning of meetings and I guess both of us having some kind of confidence that this was helping. I don't know if it was weeks or months, probably months. That's where the line is, I think. That line where you, you wake up one day and you realize, I didn't think about using yesterday. And it's no longer exciting. Yeah, it's Thursday night, that's the night mom goes to her meeting. It's Tuesday night, that's the night dad goes to his meeting. It's just what we do. We yeah. take it for granted. Mm-hmm. So as a family member, you can find the same thing in your own recovery. When it stops, for instance, being about, well, I'm doing this so my loved one can do better. I'm doing this so my loved one can recover. So first you've got to get to that point where you're doing it for yourself. And then also as you're going along, you might find that you just take for granted that you're going to go to your meeting on Thursday nights or you're reading your daily reader. And maybe you're not thinking so much about what's this doing for my loved one? What's this doing for my family? It's just becoming, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, when I started going to a program for families, you had already been in recovery for a long time. I had already been in recovery from my addictions for a long time. I didn't go in because I was desperate. I I went in because working on myself had made my life so much better that I was ready to graduate and go on to my master's program, really. My master's in recovery. So what I'm hearing in there for you and your story is that you were in the maintenance phase of one aspect of your recovery, and that allowed you to enter into the action phase of another part of your recovery and get to the point where they hopefully both became maintenance. Yeah, and they have. So let's hear from the voices of some of our guests who are going to talk anonymously about what the maintenance phase looks like for them. And how do you maintain positive changes and recovery? Okay, that's a good one. It's called maintenance. Uh, now, how do I maintain positive changes and recovery? That is going to have to be is do what I was told, and that's service, unity, and, uh, and recovery. So I, I do a lot of service work. Uh, I, I do service work now for the club that I'm a member of. Uh, I, I sponsor several people. I have uh, I, I get a new sponsee, a new sponsor once a year to work my steps, so I can stay fresh in steps. Uh, I recently, here recently, I just got a new sponsor, and uh, he's freaking awesome. Uh, we're actually, we're going to meet today uh, so we can start step one because I've been having problems with uh, managing my life. But for me to stay with ma- the maintenance stage of my recovery, I have to stay in recovery. The moment the moment that I, I put my recovery last or I put anything before my recovery, the moment I lose it, and I can lose everything else I've, I've gained so far in life. Um, you know, I try to keep my life pretty simple. I know that I have to stay meditating and I have to, to pray constantly, um, but I don't try to do too much. Uh, I gotta take care of myself. Self-care is huge and important, but I know I have to keep my recovery first and take the suggestions and do the suggestions. Yeah, just keep God close ultimately. Through working 12 steps and yeah, I mean working through 12 step stuff. Um, I can apply that to most aspects of my life and um, helping other people is huge. Always trying to help other people out. And how often do you need to work at your recovery to keep it going? Well, daily. Daily. You know, I don't have to work 12 steps in a day, but, you know, that acknowledgement and the maintenance work that goes into a program is pretty important on a daily basis. 
Definitely, I have to maintain my spiritual fitness. Um, I have to do my morning prayer meditation time and my daily readings. I need to do meetings and talk to program people and, um, you know, maintain conscious contact with my higher power all throughout the day. And, you know, I have now a routine where I, you know, I have time in the morning that I do that, and then I have time in the afternoon when I do that, and then definitely before I go to bed. I mean, obviously, I work a 12-step program, so I, I have a lot of outlets of meetings and my sponsor and working with others. But then on a more personal lo- note, I do um, a lot of meditation, sponsorship, meetings, helping with others. But then finding a personal journey with a, a higher power through a spiritual relationship. And um, I have a really big community of people that I've built up within recovery that care about me and that I care about. And we support each other. Not only do we like, cheer for each other when, when we're doing well, but we also pick each other up when we're struggling. For me, part of the program and the maintenance is keeping my mind positive and being more worried about what I can do for someone else rather than what Steven needs, you know? And if I'm, if I'm away from that for long enough, then, then I'll forget. I use about four different books. I read out of those, I read out of my Bible, and then I read out of the big book, just starting my day off like that. And then also, I try to limit my uh, social media. <laughs> I do have, you know, an addictive personality. So things that, I know are gonna draw me in and distract me from my sobriety. (laughs) And believe me, there's times I um, find myself not in, you know, such a good place and then I have to look at what is taking my time up. And sometimes it's Facebook and sometimes it's comparing myself to others. So I have to really, um, at the end of the day, evaluate where I'm, I'm putting my time. I think it just reminding myself that this journey doesn't end. There's no graduation ceremony that I'm aware of, so that I want to be teachable. And so when I can grasp onto that humility, then it gets way easier than me trying to think that I know it all or that I've got it. And Because, man, I know that that pride can take me back to old behaviors. And so just being open and willing to keep learning and keep seeking counsel, you know, that's, that's what keeps me sane. And so there's some folks talking about what helps them stay in the maintenance phase. Now, something to recognize about maintenance is just like all the other stages, it's possible to go from there back to pre-contemplation. But here's what's cool. If we go out, the longer we're in maintenance, the easier it is to get back to maintenance. So for instance, if part of me says, hey, you know what, I want to go back into my addiction. And then I think, mm, that's probably not a great idea. Maybe I should like go to a meeting or call my sponsor instead. And then I go and do that. What I've just done is I've gone into pre-contemplation, I've gone into contemplation, maybe that's not a good idea, preparation, make a plan, I'm gonna call my sponsor, go to a meeting, and then I take action on that plan, and bingo, I'm right back in maintenance, and the whole thing might have been over in just a minute. So when you talk about going back to pre-contemplation, I am thinking about the sixth stage of change, the optional stage, which is relapse. So Prochaska and DiClemente in their original model 
had the stage of relapse. And the reason we call that optional is because while some people say relapse is just part of recovery, because it does happen a lot, the relapse rates for addiction are comparable to most chronic relapsing diseases like diabetes or heart disease or all kinds of things where we know that a certain percentage of people are going to relapse. But we say it's optional because there's a certain number of people that never will. And unlike some of the other diseases, because it's a brain disease and because it centers in the part of our brain that helps us make decisions, we don't want to encourage people to relapse because that part of our brain that makes decisions that gets addicted will say, hey, maybe we could go back to the pre-contemplation stage. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. So... Some people say relapse is part of recovery. Others say, well, it's something that happens, but it's certainly not a necessary stage in the stages of change. Just like a family or organization or an individual never needs to go back to their old behavior in the same way somebody with an addiction has no obligation or will necessarily ever relapse. Right. And those are the stages of change. Whether you are someone in active addiction, in recovery, or a family member, We invite you to take a moment and ask yourself where you are in the stages of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, action, and maintenance. As we heard, you may be in different stages for different issues, or you might find yourself bouncing from one stage to another around a particular issue. Wherever you are in the process, think about how you might move yourself forward to where you want to be in your recovery. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction and the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Arriaga, with music by Casey.